Well, if you have paid attention any of this week, if you have watched the news or listened to the news or tracked the news, however you might track it, then you have undoubtedly heard the names of Manti Teo and Lance Armstrong. Manti Teo, the linebacker from Notre Dame, the most decorated college football player in history. This week, we discovered that he found himself entangled in a web of what they call catfishing. He finds himself involved in an internet scam. And then there's Lance Armstrong, the most decorated cyclist in American history, the poster boy for cancer survivors, the the face, and indeed the former president of Live Strong, one of the most prominent um, cancer-fighting foundations in the world, a man that has been inspiration to thousands of people around the world, admitted this week publicly that his life, in essence, his public persona, has been a lie for all these years. And we look at these, these sports heroes, and we see it played out over and over again, whether it's a sporting arena or the business world or politics or even in the area of church and religion. And we see these that we hold up as icons, as pillars, and eventually... Because of the sinfulness that is laden in their own hearts, eventually many of them fall and we say to ourselves, oh, how the mighty have fallen. But they don't just fall, beloved, because of the sin that is laden in their own hearts. They also fall in battle. In April of 1968, Three days after Dr. Martin Luther King had been assassinated, the popular singer Nina Simone at the time stood on a stage in New York State and she sang for the first time the song, What's Gonna Happen Now That the King of Love is Dead. And in commemoration of the death of Dr. King, she sang... He was for equality for all peoples, you and me. Full of goodwill, hate was not his way. He was not a violent man. So folks, tell me if you can, just why? Why was he shot down the other day? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. A couple months later, after Dr. King, we know that Robert F. Kennedy was slain in similar fashion. It's a turbulent time in, in, in the history of the United States. The late, late 60s, there was tumult everywhere. Riots broke out from New York to New Jersey, from Detroit to Chicago to Los Angeles, California. 
It was a hectic time. It was a dangerous time. People were wondering what was happening and what would become of our country. There was potential for chaos. There was a real potential. So it was in the United States. So it was also in Israel when Saul died. When the king of Israel died, people were wondering what was going to happen to the nation, what was going to happen to their country. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. What's going to happen now that the king of Israel is dead? We come to Chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, and it begins as the last chapter of 1 Samuel left off. It begins with the death of Saul. King Saul is dead. The once mighty king who stood head and shoulders above everyone else in the nation of Israel. The one who seemed unconquerable, now is dead. He has fallen in battle against the Philistines. And uh, the last chapter of 1 Samuel recounts the, the death of Saul as he is mortally wounded in battle and not wanting the Philistines to capture him. He, he, he calls for his armor bearer and for his armor bearer to, to, to do him the favor of killing him. But his armor bearer, fearing Saul, and more importantly, fearing God, says, no way would I slay the king. And Saul ends up killing himself. And the armor bearer, seeing the king slain, does the same. It was an awful time. It was a tragic death for Saul. The victory that the Philistines won on that day bolstered them. They began to mock the nation of Israel and to indeed treat Israel, indeed the king and his sons, with the most disrespect. In verse 8 of chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, it says this, then the next day, following the day in which the battle in which Saul had been killed, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, it says they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head. They cut off his head and stripped him of his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. And they put his armor in the temple of the Asherah and they fashioned his headless body to the wall. Of Bethshan. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. 
Saul was once the mighty and sovereign and powerful king of Israel. And now he was the subject of mocking before idols and false gods. When we come to chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, the news of Saul's death is beginning to spread throughout the land. And chaos is looming. And as with every situation, we understand that when there is chaos, in every situation where there is uncertainty, there are unscrupulous people who's going to try to take advantage of the situation. So it was. The time of Saul's death. And yet in spite of it all, beloved, and despite the sinful and devious plans of, of people and men, our text reminds us again, as it has over and over again, that there is a sovereign God who sees and orchestrates all things and has a divine plan that he's working out in the nation for his people to bring about the redemption and, 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 and the love that he has for his people and the glory of his name. This is what our text reminds us. Even in the midst of chaos, there is the sovereign, redemptive plan of God. Our text has three important movements in us that I want us to see. These are descriptive of the times of David and Saul and the death of Jonathan. But they're also descriptive of our time as we shall see. And these three movements that our text has for us this morning, it's the first thing you see is there's this lie, right? Then the next thing we see is that there's this lament. Then the last thing we'll see is that there's this glorious love. But the first thing we see is that there's this, there's this lie. There's this huge lie. Now, it would appear that David first heard about the death of Saul and Jonathan from a stranger. The Bible says an Amalekite, a young man an Amalekite. For after fighting and defeating, as David had, the Bible says, the Amalekites, he returned home to Ziglag, his home base, where his family was, and he sat there to rest and recover. And on the third day of returning from fighting against the Amalekites, there comes to him, of all people, an Amalekite. An Amalekite comes to Ziglag to inform David that Saul and Jonathan are dead. He has run from Mount Gilboa, which is probably about 60 miles from Ziglag. And he has come running for the past three days. And he gets to Ziglag. And he has an agenda. And his whole agenda is based on a lie. Or as Lance Armstrong said, one big lie. 
His whole agenda is based on one big lie. But a young man has an agenda. He's going to parlay this lie into a prosperous living. He's going to parlay this life into a government job. Get in David's good graces and secure his livelihood from now on. All based on a lie. And he lied, beloved. He lied. He lied with his presence, didn't he? Verse 2. It said, when he came, he came, he torn clothes and dirt on his head. Those are signs of mourning. He's not in mourning. He's not in mourning for Saul. He's not in mourning for Jonathan. But he comes and his very presence is a lie. The way he has fashioned himself is a lie. He comes as if he is mourning the death of the king and the princes of Israel. Clothes torn, dirt on his head, as if he cared. But not only is his presence a lie, he lied with his, with his posture too. In verse 2 again, when he gets to David, what does he do? He falls down. He bows down as if to give the impression of respect and honor to David. But how do you respect and honor somebody to whom you are going to lie? Your whole agenda is to lie to him. And to bow down and to pay him homage and respect is to feign respect and honor. Your whole presence, your whole agenda, your whole scheme is a lie. He lied with his, with his presence, he lied with his posture, and then ultimately he lied with his words, didn't he? But when given the opportunity to speak, he says that he came across, he happened to come across Saul mortally wounded. And he did the nation the favor of killing the king. Beloved, we know from the text as we saw earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 31 that he was not with Saul when Saul died. He wasn't that courageous. He wasn't with the army of Saul. He wasn't with Saul when Saul died. He was not so courageous enough to even approach the dying king. His whole agenda is based on one big whole life, his presence, his postures, and his words are all lies. And we look at him and we ask ourselves the question, how could he be so foolish? Did he think that he could get away with such a lie in the presence of the God of Israel? Did he think that he could fool The people of God who are governed by the presence and the power of God? 
And he thinks that he could live his life before the face of God, the one who sees and knows all, the one who searches the hearts of men and women, the one before whom we are all naked and all have to be eventually brought into account. You put it in those terms, and then you realize, I'm not much different than that Amalekite. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says it implies that we are all liars. Psalm 116 seems to say that. Romans 3 and 3 seems to say that we are born liars. Come out of our mother's womb, liars. You know, Jeremiah 17 and verse 9 says, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Deceitful, what does that word deceitful mean? It means that the heart lies. It lies to us. It's lying to some of you this morning. You know, when, when Woody Allen, y'all know Woody Allen. When Woody Allen committed an adulterous affair on his wife with the nanny that they had hired and left his wife for the nanny, they questioned him and asked him about that. And Woody Allen said, well, you know, the heart wants what it wants. You're right, Mr. Allen. The heart does want what it wants. And that is the problem. Because your heart lies. And your heart is deceitful. And your heart is going to convince you that you actually need that thing. Your heart is going to try to convince you that you actually have to have that relationship. That you must have that possession. That you must go there. That you must be that person. And many of us not only just lie, but then we take, seek to take advantage and gain through that lie. In Acts chapter 5, and Ananias and Sapphira, their heart lied to them and told them that they could deceive not just the church of God, but God himself. The Bible tells us over and over again, does it not, that God despises liars. He hates lying. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16 says that God hates a lying tongue. In verse 19, he hates a false witness who breathes out lies. As you know, in Revelation chapter 20, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, the Bible says that all liars will have their portion in the lake that burns with fire lie why because as David would tell us later on in Psalm 51 that God desires truth in the inward parts because he is a God of truth because he is a God of truth because he is True. 
and cannot and will not allow falsehood in his presence or to go unpunished or unjudged. This is why, beloved, this is why he sent Christ into the world. Because we are liars. He sent Christ into the world because our hearts are deceitful. He sent Christ into the world because we lie with our postures. We lie with our presence. We lie with our words. But the Bible says that Christ not only came bringing truth. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says that he is full of truth. In verse 17, it says that truth has come through him. You know what you heard all this week? As the news porters were, were running around trying to get the next angle on these different stories about Lance Armstrong and Manti Tail, the common refrain was, we just want to know the truth. We want the truth. Yes, you not only want the truth, you need the truth. And guess what? Jesus is the truth. There is no truth apart from him. And apart from Jesus, all else will be found to be a lie. Yes, yes, yes. The world wants the truth. And that's when the church says, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The Amalekites had several things working against them. You know that? Just wasn't going to work from the get-go. He had several things working against them. The first thing that was working against him was that he was not an Israelite. He was an Amalekite, the sworn enemy of the people of God. You remember the Amalekites in your biblical history, in your reading of the Old Testament? The Amalekites were the first people to attack the nation of Israel when they came out of Egypt. In Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 17, it says that they continually sniped at Israel. Always picking at them, always fighting them, picking off the weak among them, picking off those that would get left behind. In fact, God told Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15 in, in verses 2 and 3, God told Saul, Saul, go and destroy the Amalekites, all of them, men, women, and children. Wipe them off the face of the earth. Did Saul do it? No. That's why as 2 Samuel opens up, what is David doing? He's fighting the Amalekites. Because Saul, in his disobedience, didn't do as God had commanded. And here comes who? An Amalekite. He's going to tell David that his best friend is dead. <laughs> He's got that working against him. The next thing he's got working against him is not only he's not a Malachite, but he's not David. He's no David. He's no Israelite, and he's no David. For, for some reason, 
This young man had gathered in his mind that David was just like him. Scheming, ambitious, seeking revenge. And surely, he thought, David would be ecstatic when he finds out that I'm the one who killed Saul. He misjudged David, didn't he? He misjudged David because David doesn't want the kingdom at all costs. David wants the glory of God more than he wants the glory of David. He misjudged David because he thought David was just like him. Not only is he no David, not only is he no Israelite, but he had no fear. It's another thing that's working against him. Not only did he not fear David, but more importantly, he didn't fear God. He didn't fear God because he is willing to stand in the presence of David and do what David would not do. And that is kill King Saul. David had several opportunities to kill Saul, and every time David refused to do so because he feared God. And Saul was God's anointed king. And here is this Amalekite who has the nerve to do the thing that David, but not only David, Saul's armor bearer would not do because they feared God. You know what the Bible says over and over again in Proverbs? That the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It is the fear of God that keeps you from lying. You know that, don't you? The reason we lie, the reason he lied, the reason we lie is because we fear men more than we fear God. It is the fear of God that puts truth on our tongues. It is the fear of God that keeps us walking in the way of wisdom. It is knowing that our God is an ever-presence God and that we live our lives before his face that keeps us seeking the truth. He had no fear of God, and that made him a fool. And lastly, he had no excuse. He was left without excuse. Because when David questioned him and asked him what happened and what he did, his own words incriminated him. He was without excuse. He spoke his own in. He says to David, I have killed your sworn enemy. Surely you will rejoice. And David says, no, you have not killed my sworn enemy. You have killed the anointed of God. And be sure, Amalekite, that your sin will find you out. And it has. For David says in verse 16, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Can you imagine? I'm just, sometimes my mind just begins to wonder and imagine 
Once that Amalekite began to realize that the scheme was not going the way that he wanted it to go. Once he began to realize that David was not responding in the way that David should have responded according to him, I think he probably began to backtrack a little bit and say, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, David. No, 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 David, David, David. no, see what happened was, (laughs) no, 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 David, psych, psych, you know, you know I ain't killed Saul. Come on, David. But by that time, beloved, it's too late. It's too late. Do you know that in the judgment that you will be your own witness? When you are men, when men and women are called before the judgment seat of God, God will not have to call anybody else to witness against them. You and I will be our own witness. So Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 37, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they spoke. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Why? Because it is our own words that will testify to our rejection of Christ and trampling underfoot the grace of God. And it will also be our own words that will testify to our faith and trust in Christ. There won't be anyone else. God won't need to call anybody to bear witness. He won't call your mother or your father, your sister or your brother or your pastor or your friends. You will be your own witness. And in the judgment, people will testify against or for themselves. And it will be too late at that point. You can't start backtracking then. You can't say, oh, wait a minute, God. God, I didn't mean that. Oh, wait a minute, psych, psych. You knew all along I was with you, Lord. It'll be too late, beloved. Today is the day. And now is the time. And tomorrow is not promised. And when you're standing before the Lord, it is then too late. And I say that in earnest to you, young people. Now is the time. There's no need to wait for there's an urgency in the salvation that comes through Christ Jesus. Now is the time. To behold Christ and to hear him calling out to you. To receive his free offer of of grace and forgiveness. To begin to walk in his ways. To turn from the world. And secure joy in the presence of God for all eternity. Now is the time. And today is the day. To make sure that the testimony that you bring before the Lord on that last day is one of faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Now is the time. It's an amazing, amazing 
discovery here that David makes. His amazing discovery and revelation for the Amalekite as well. What will be the revelation for us, for you, for me, at the judgment? Amalekite is destroyed. David and the nation mourns. They mourn the loss of Saul. From the lie, we see the lament. David weeps and he laments. He mourns the death of Saul and Jonathan. And his mourning led to this lamentation, this lament. And what is a lament? A lament is a, a sad and, 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 and thoughtful expression of grief and hurt. It is not simply that David is sad, but he puts his sadness into words. He puts it in the song. And he grieves. He grieves for the nation. Notice what it says in verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gad. Publish it not in the streets of Escalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. David doesn't want this published. He's not interested in the nation's rejoicing over the demise of King Saul, over the tragedy of Israel. He is not interested in God being defaced in the nations because his people have been brought low. And so he mourns for the nation. The nation is wondering what's going to happen now that the king is dead and so is David. But I'm just mourn for the nation. He grieves for her daughters. He says, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. You clo- he, who clothed you luxuriously with, with, with scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. For David, those who should weep particularly are the daughters of Israel. Because they have lost a champion. Saul was their champion. And he fought for them. Saul was their champion and he won battles for them so that they could live in safety, so that they could dwell in the presence of God. And David said, daughters of Israel, I mourn for you because your champion is dead. He who has loved you has given his life in protection and honor of you you and your virtue. You know what? David is so instructive to us here. You know why? Because most of us in David's position would not have had anything good to say about Saul. Saul was David's sworn enemy. Saul tried on several occasions to kill David and David's friend Jonathan. Saul had put out a hit on David. And yet David never, ever said a bad word about Saul, even in his death. It's so instructive to us here. 
Because David is real, and most of us are just paper mache Christians. You know what Jesus says? You have heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. How instructive that is. That the love that David showed to Saul is a love that Christ glorified and said that we should have for our enemies as well. David grieves for the nation. David grieves for the daughters. He grieves for Saul even before he grieves for himself. But then you know what? He does grieve for himself, doesn't he? And he grieves. And he grieves mightily for himself. In verse 26, he moves from the nation to the daughters and he begins to grieve for himself. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle, he says. Jonathan, lies slain on your high places. Then he says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. How pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me has, was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war perished. You know, David had a passionate commitment. And there's no doubt of his deep love for Saul. But even more so for Jonathan. And as we see, the lament moves to this love. And it is a Magnificent love, beloved. The depth of David's love for Jonathan is commendable. And anyone, and anyone who has ever had a friend knows how precious a thing a friend is. For true friendship is a treasure. And David, by all accounts, was a rich man. But his love for Jonathan is not only commendable, but in many quarters, beloved, it is controversial. Notice what he says, how he describes it. He says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. The NIV translates it as wonderful, more wonderful than the love of women. A New England translation says, more special to me than women. A New Living translation says, deeper, deeper, deeper than the love of women. And that's interesting. That that should give us pause and cause us to think for a moment. As you think over the life of David, and you do understand that David didn't have much success when it came to women. Of all the wives that David had, the most notable one was one he attained through an adulterous relationship. So you might begin to understand why David would say, your love to me has been more precious than that of women. 
David didn't have much success in his marital life. And yet some have taken these words here in verse 26. Some have taken these words here to be a reference, nonetheless, to a same-sex homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan. And unfortunately have twisted the scripture in this way to make it seem like the scriptures would be sympathetic to a same-sex relationship. And thus have used these verses and others to normalize, if they can, and even ordain homosexual life and lifestyle within the church. This is not just a misuse of the text, beloved. It is an abuse of the text. Again, you know, in the news recently, there has been much about same-sex marriage and homosexuality discussion lately. Perhaps you are familiar with uh, Louis Giglio, a local pastor here in, in Atlanta, who had initially been invited to offer the, the benediction, a benedictory prayer for the inauguration that will happen on tomorrow for President Obama. But upon discussions between Louis Giglio and the White House and the revelation that Louis Giglio at one time or another had preached a sermon condemning homosexuality as a sin, Louis Giglio withdrew his name from consideration to give the benediction because such a fuss was being made over his views on homosexuality. Washington National Cathedral, the most prominent church in the nation's capital, one of the most prominent in the world where all of the ecumenical services are held and where the presidents attend the church and have been for years, just recently announced that they're going to begin performing same-sex marriages. Several states, as we know from the last election cycle, passed same-sex marriage laws, legalizing it in those states. And we know that President Obama and Mayor Kasim Reed himself also have both come out this past year in favor of same-sex marriage. There's no way of getting around the discussion. It is all around us. And it is going to anticipate, beloved. It is going to grow. It is, go- it is gaining steam. And the conversation will only get louder and louder and louder. But we need to know that the Bible is not silent on this issue. And therefore, neither are we. In many quarters, unfortunately, such things, and, and it saddens me to say this and to understand this and to see this, unfortunately, in many quarters, even among us, the idea of homosexuality is a matter of comic relief and laughter. But you do understand that the Bible is not a comic book. And neither is sin. Therefore, we're going to speak about these things. We need to do it faithfully. We need to do it forthrightly. We need to do it clearly. We need to do it truthfully. We need to do it lovingly. 
Now what must we do? I'm going to give you three, three ways that we need to speak about it. The first thing is we need to call homosexuality what it is. What the Bible calls it. It's a sin. We need to call it what it is, and that is the sin that it is. We want to speak the truth in love, but we want to speak the truth. We are not homophobic. We do not fear homosexuals. But we want to speak the truth. We want to call it what the Bible calls it. And over and over again. I'm going to read all the verses for you, but it calls it a sin over and over again. In Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22. In Leviticus Leviticus 20 and verse 13. In Romans 1 and 26. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. Homosexuality is called a sin, but it's not only a sin by precept. The Bible reminds us also that it's a sin by example. For in the beginning, God created man and woman and gave them the mandate to procreate and establish his kingdom and reign throughout the earth. The only way that that can happen according to the laws of nature that God has orchestrated and instituted, is that a man and a woman accomplish the will of God. We want to call it what it is. It's a violation of the law of God. It's a violation of the commands of God. It is disobedience. It is transgression of his laws. And it is a sin for which those engaged in that activity need to and can repent. I guess there goes my invitation to the next inauguration. We don't only want to call homosexuality the sin that it is, beloved. But we also want to call all sin what it is. We want to call all sin what it is. We don't want, and we're not, going to make a bigger issue out of homosexuality than the Bible does. In fact, it is my conviction that it is not the church that is making a big issue out of homosexuality. It's the world. All the church is seeking to do is to respond to it biblically. It's to offer the truth that the world claims is seeking. We only seek to respond to it biblically. But this is what we seek to do with all sin. Do you know and understand? I want, I want us to understand this. That homosexuality is a sin, but divorce has done more to undermine the credibility of the church than homosexuality ever has. Racism has done more to undermine the witness of the church than homosexuality ever has. Greed, pornography, fornication, have done more to undermine the witness and the credibility and the truth that the church has to give to the world than homosexuality ever has. Therefore, we don't fixate on one sin. We desire to call it all into account. You do understand that there is no such thing as a homosexual hell. There's just hell. And all 
unrepentant sinners will go there. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, says the cowards will be there. The faithless will be there. Murderers, idolaters, fornicators, liars, and many others will have their portion in the lake that burns with fire. We want to call homosexuality the sin that it is. We want to call all sin the sin that it is. Lastly, we want to proclaim a grace that is greater than all our sin. We want to proclaim that Christ died for sin. The banner under which we live is not homosexuals are going to hell. The banner under which we live is that Christ has died for sin. That he is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And no sin is beyond the redemptive power of the blood of Christ. And that's the message we proclaim. Jesus saves. I don't care what the sin is. He saves. And if he can save me, he can save anybody. Recently, I was reading a, a, a book by um, a professor, a woman professor, who used to be, um, who used to be a lesbian. And Christ arrested her, she says, and, and saved her and changed her. And now she is a pastor's wife. And she made this comment. She said, people want to make much of my sin of homosexuality. But she said, my heterosexual sin was just as bad, if not worse, than my homosexual sin. And that reminds me, Jesus saves. Whatever the sin, he saves. And listen, if you are, and in a crowd this size, I, I, there may be, I have, no, I have no doubts that there could be, those of you here this morning who are struggling with homosexuality. And temptations and inclinations toward that sin. I pray first that you don't hear anything from this church that will cause you to doubt Jesus' power and desire to save you. But I also want to encourage you to know that we desire to love you so that you would understand that Christ loves you and desires better for your life. We don't just call homosexuality the sin it is and call all sin that it is. The banner under which we ultimately live is that Jesus saves. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If he can save me, beloved, he can save every homosexual in this world. You know what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9? 
Do you not know that the righteous, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God? I have been in that list several times over. And it wasn't a homosexual one. By the grace of God. There's more than one in that list that has my name on it. Notice what it says. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Why? Because the grace of God is greater than all our sin. Because the love of God is greater than all our sin. Listen, David loved Jonathan, not with an eros, but with an agape. It was not an erotic love. It was the love of God that God desires for us to have for each other because it is the love that he has for us. What a glorious love it is. You see it in David, but Jonathan, but even more so and even more amazing. You see it in David's greater son, Jesus, in his love for us. You think Jonathan, you think David loved Jonathan with a deep love? I pray you would know the love of Christ. You would know the love that surpasses all understanding in this world. You would know the love of God. Unto our sins being forgiven. Unto us being secured in his eternal presence of joy and love through all eternity. It's the love of God that saves and makes all the difference in the world. Well, let's pray.